Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on making sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of Market Matters, we discuss the latest news and trends shaping markets today. Hi, I'm Eloise Goulder, head of the Data Assets and Alpha Group here at J.P. Morgan. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Krupa Patel, who regularly features on this podcast and who runs our international market intelligence team. Today, to discuss market dynamics across both Europe and Asia. So, Krupa, thank you so much for being here once again. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me again, Eloise. Well, I think it's fair to say that there's a lot to talk about, Krupa, particularly given we've seen this real divergence in performance between European and Asian equities over the last few months. European equities are close to year-to-date highs right now, with the stock 600 up almost 10% on the year. But by contrast, Asian equities, which did have a really strong January, have since given up much of those gains. And MSCI Asia is up only around 3% this year, in spite of many fundamental tailwinds that we've long discussed, including, of course, China's reopening economy. So, Krupa, I'm really looking forward to digging into all of this with you. Of course. Can we start with Asia and specifically China? Chinese equities had been a real outperformer, with China's SH Comp Index up a full 12% actually from last November to late January this year, presumably linked, as I said, to the reopening theme. And indeed, the house view from our research analysts has been bullish China since, I think, October last year. And I know, Krupa, that you've been bullish China as well. So, Krupa, can you start by discussing what's happened in China over the last few months and why you think Chinese markets have effectively flatlined over that recent period? Sure. So, yes, as you mentioned, since the end of last year, across JP Morgan, we'd all been very optimistic on the China growth recovery theme. The economy's unexpected reopening in December, combined with the continuous stimulus injections we'd been seeing in the run-up to reopening and even after it, in addition to easier comps given the sharp slowdown we'd had last year on the back of zero COVID, were all pointing to a strong improvement in China's growth trajectory this year. You'll remember that during a number of our podcasts together late last year and also earlier this year, we had talked about how China was increasingly looking to be the one bright spot in the global economy as a lot of the DM world, notably the US, grappled with recession fears, central bank policy uncertainty and bank failures. Now, up until a few weeks ago, the Chinese economy was rebounding nicely with all high-frequency indicators around reopening, our economists tracked, suggesting increased mobility and spending, and the traditional leading indicators like PMIs, retail sales and DSF growth also printing some really strong numbers. China's manufacturing PMI, for example, had rebounded to 52.6 back in February, back into expansion territory after spending most of the last year in contraction territory. And also, it was the highest level in over a decade. 
DSF flow, which is widely regarded as a good leading indicator for the Chinese economy, significantly beat consensus expectations once again in March, rising to 5.39 trillion yuan, with the stock of outstanding TSF rising by 10% year-on-year. So it's perhaps unsurprising, given all the improvement we'd seen in the China data in the earlier months of 2023, that the Q1 GDP growth in the economy came in notably above consensus expectations at 11.9% on the quarter. Now, in the last couple of weeks, however, there does appear to have been a bit of a change in the incoming macro data in China. The PMI releases at the start of May, for instance, disappointed consensus expectations, with the Kaishin manufacturing PMI falling below sell-side forecasts back into contraction territory at 49.5, with a number of its underlying components, including output, new orders, and employment, all falling on the month. Then last week brought with it a string of weak releases, which all raised concerns over whether the China growth recovery momentum had indeed stalled. The April credit report released early last week came in notably below expectations, with moderation seen in both bank loans and aggregate financing. The increase in TSF flow eased to just 1.22 trillion yuan in April, versus consensus expectations of 2 trillion yuan. And credit impulse, which is the gap between TSF growth and nominal GDP growth, and also a widely tracked leading indicator for the Chinese economy, eased to 4.8 points versus 5.5 points in March. Possibly one of the biggest disappointments last week was in the inflation report, which suggested that reopening was failing to drive a material reacceleration in inflation. Headline CPI in China came in close to zero at 0.1% year-on-year versus 0.7% in March, and PPI fell further into deflationary territory down to minus 3.6% in April. Thanks, Krupa. That's all really helpful context. And it does point to some disappointments in growth data over the last couple of weeks. But isn't this just a blip? And I'm asking that because you mentioned earlier that Chinese macro growth had been as high as nearly 12% quarter on quarter in Q1. So shouldn't we expect a small bout of softness after that? Yeah, so while it may be tempting to think that the latest slew of weak economic data releases in China may just be a blip, our economists' expectations and some of the underlying details of the recent data do not unfortunately suggest so. With regards to inflation, for example, our economists expect CPI to remain subdued in the near term, likely staying below the 1% handle at least through the third quarter. And when you look at the underlying details of the April TSF report as well, it looks like one of the primary reasons behind the weakness we've seen lately in this data has been household loans, suggesting that the housing market recovery that many had hoped for this year is perhaps not materialising or could well remain sluggish through most of this year. 
Interesting. Thank you. So can you walk through how we've seen investors positioning for both that Chinese market rally through late part of last year and January this year, but also how flows have trended more recently amid this period of macro softness? And I ask this because we've had a lot of questions over the last couple of months, really, around how crowded the China recovery trade has become at this stage. So based on our positioning intelligence team's prime hedge fund flows data, we did see significant buying in China local equities through 2022. And as such, positioning is looking reasonably elevated versus history. So net exposures, for instance, in China local equities are at plus 1.5 standard deviations versus their five-year history. Having said that, though, it's worth noting that overall, we have seen net selling in the prime books since January this year, suggesting investors have been cautious on the pace of reopening tailwinds, so there is scope for further buying to get back up to the January 2023 highs. But also, when we talk about how investors have been positioning for the China recovery theme in the last six to seven months, It is important to talk about Europe, particularly European luxury goods, as that seems to have been a preferred way for some global investors to play this theme. Hedge fund flows over the last couple of months in this sector have been very positive, in line with performance for the wider sector, which obviously has been hitting all-time highs lately. Quite interestingly, however, flows have turned neutral in the past week. So the recent weaker China data does appear to be having an impact on flows in European luxury goods as well. That's really interesting. Thank you, Krupa. Well, that would be a great segue into discussing European equities. But just before we go there, can I ask you, what are your views now on the risk reward for owning Chinese equities? And how are you thinking about playing Chinese equities right now? That's a great question. Now, I think that from a tactical perspective, at least, it may make sense to stay out of Chinese equities for now. Firstly, because of the growth weakness we've been seeing in recent weeks, a theme that many of our domestic Asian and global investors have actually been getting concerned about for a little while and reducing their exposure to the region in lieu of, as we talked about earlier. Second, geopolitical tensions remain an overhang for Chinese markets and a chief reason why you've continued to see global investors trade European luxury goods and the wider European equity market as a China proxy rather than buying domestic China to position for Chinese reopening. Third, the tech rebound that we saw intensify around the Alibaba restructuring headlines has failed to materially take off. And that's a bit problematic for the region's wider market, as it was really Queb, which was at the forefront of the China rebound back in Q4 last year, as you'll remember. And finally, when I look at our data signals and toolkits as well, our signal from the noise framework for CSI 300 is squarely out of buy territory at the moment, with fundamentals failing to be supported by PMIs and other macro data at the moment. From a more long-term perspective, however, our strategists remain fairly constructive on the outlook for Chinese equities. Wendy Liu, who is our chief China and Asia equity strategist, together with our chief market strategist Marko Kolanovic, maintains her bullish view on the region. 
But she does see a pause or a reversal in the near term on account of the risks that I've just talked about earlier. Once the market moves past these risks, however, Wendy believes China's still cheap valuations, which for MSCI China are currently around 10 times on a 12-month forward P basis, and a relatively more optimistic growth outlook versus growing recession odds in the US, mean that the case for China outperforming is still largely valid. Thanks, Krupa. That's helpful. So turning to Europe then... Europe Stock 600 also rallied hard through Q4 of last year and then, unlike Chinese equities, has continued to outperform this year. The Stock 600 is now up 22% since lows that we saw in September last year. And as I mentioned earlier, the Stock 600 is now up a full 10% this year. We field a lot of questions from investors wondering what has driven this outperformance. And I know, Krupa, that you and I have discussed this at length on prior podcasts. So, Krupa, how much do you believe Europe has been buoyed by the China reopening theme? And if indeed Chinese macro growth is stalling somewhat, as you've just articulated, do you think European equities are now vulnerable too? The short answer to your question is yes. European equities have already struggled for direction in the last couple of weeks, despite a better than expected Q1 earnings season. And I think it's really a combination of domestic growth weakness, growing US recession risks and stalling of Chinese growth momentum, which are all behind this. In fact, if you look at our positioning intelligence team's data on European markets in the last week, we have actually seen some selling of around minus one standard deviations in magnitude. I'd note that hedge fund net positioning in European equities as measured by long-short ratios remains at 40th percentile, i.e. below the long-term average of the past five years, but it is still up significantly from the 14th percentile in November, and CTA positioning is also quite elevated at 80th percentile over a 20-year history. So if China does weaken further, Europe being the most exposed to the CME economy could get hit pretty badly, especially as the stock 600 is still trading near one-year highs, post its 22% rally from last September's lows. Thank you, Krupa. And are there any sectors that you think will be most vulnerable in this scenario then? Yeah, so from a sector perspective, I think China exposed cyclicals, including capital goods, resources, chemicals and autos, may be the most vulnerable here. I didn't include luxury in this list, as despite being heavily exposed to China, it does have some notable defensive growth characteristics, which is why it's often referred to as Europe's fang. So on a relative basis, even if Chinese growth weakens further from here, luxury could actually hold up okay on a relative basis. But does that mean European equities could be okay too? Not really. Because even though many have been trading European equities in aggregate as a luxury proxy, it's important to remember that the sector constitutes only 7% of Stock 600's market cap. The fangs in the US, which often European luxury is compared to, are 25% of the S&P 500 on the other hand. And I'd note that 
all of this cautiousness on Europe that I've just laid out, including my cautiousness on traditional cyclicals in Europe, is all consistent with what our European equity strategist Mislav has been saying of late as well. Many of our listeners will remember that he recently wrote a piece just a couple of weeks ago advocating taking profits on the Europe versus US trade for many of the reasons that I've talked about in this podcast earlier. Thanks, Krupa. So one final question for you then. If you're tactically more cautious on both Chinese and European equities on account of the weakness in growth momentum in China, among other factors, then... Krupa, where are you the most bullish? Is it still Japan, which I know you've been bullish on for a while now? Yes, exactly. That still remains the case. Worth listening to our podcast, A New Dawn for Japanese Equities, where I articulated this view in more detail. But in summary, given the structural transformation that the Japanese economy is seeing with its rising inflation after decades of deflation a relatively resilient growth outlook that Japan is currently enjoying versus the rest of DMs, corporate governance reforms, and the end of negative interest rates all mean that the Nikkei could be one of the best regional markets to own on a long-term basis right now. The Nikkei already has been responding to all of these tailwinds quite nicely, and in the last few weeks, it has actually hit the highest level since September 2021, and I think it's got a lot further to go. Great. Well, at least we have a positive note to end on there. Thank you once again, Krupa, for sharing your views on markets today. Thanks, Eloise. It was great to be here again. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to this bi-weekly podcast from our group. We'd love to hear feedback on our content and to hear about other topics you'd like covered. So if you have feedback or questions or you'd like to explore our wider team content further, then please do go to our website at jpmorgan.com forward slash market dash data dash intelligence. And there you can send us a message via the contact us form. And with that, we'll close. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Market Matters. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to JP Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of JP Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates, together JP Morgan. They are not the product of J.P. Morgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Referenced products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures forward slash sales and trading disclaimer. For the avoidance of doubt, opinions expressed by any external speakers are the personal views of those speakers and do not represent the views of J.P. Morgan.